I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. Hey, as a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us? Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome back to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Palazzolo and Sam Monson making our way through the NFL, Sam. It's NFC South time, of course. The first, what, six divisions. They're all done. They're all wherever you're listening to your podcast right now, so go check them out. Um, even if your team's not in that division, I suggest you just listen to us talk hmm. for that long. Why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to? Right. I think every podcast was awesome, but this is going to be the best one we've ever had. Okay. Yeah. We're just Fair trying enough. to get better every day. It's NFC South. Uh, it's the opposite of how hard can it be. I think it's going to be really tough, the NFC South. Is this the best division in football? What is the opposite of how hard can it be? How easy could it be? Very difficult. <laughs> it doesn't really work. It's going to be – I'm yeah. not going to say what the opposite is. Okay, all right. Gonna uh, it's going I, to be difficult. Is it the best division in football? No. Um, I think you could argue that the NFC West is certainly tougher, which we'll get to our last one yeah uh nfc west that's yeah, probably NFC the south doesn't have the depth I, I don't think the panthers are up there but right. if you're looking at okay are there there are three top 10 quarterbacks in this division true so that's that as your starting point with breeze brady and matt ryan yeah what no i was just gonna uh, i was gonna make a joke but the moment's gone steve don't worry about it brady's not top 10 I joke? would never say such a thing. Matt Ryan's not top ten. Top five, I've said in the past. Maybe they're all old. Maybe. They, they are all old. Except Teddy. You've got two top five quarterbacks in Matt Ryan and Teddy. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, you want to just get into it? Sure. sure. Uh, before we get into it, a lot of things happening over at PFF.com. I assume everybody got their college football subscription last week. But if you didn't, it's still out there. And there's a 25% off promo code, CFB. 25 it's the first time we've ever put out college football grades and given you the full premium stats package so if you guys are pff elite members and you have the nfl version with our stats and grades going back to 2006 we now have the college version with stats and grades going back to 2014 plus a few easter eggs from previous seasons so go check that out cfb25 is the promo code 25 percent off and you also get the awesome college football preview magazine. And we unleashed the preseason NFL draft guide. That is for P- current and new PFF Edge and Elite users. Preseason NFL draft guide has 100 NFL draft prospect player profiles. And it looks better every single year since we started it a few years ago. So um, go check that out over at PFF.com. Let's get into the NFC South, starting with the Atlanta Falcons. A team that I think from a PFF standpoint has just been a disappointment the last couple of years. Like this is the team where they start with the quarterback with Matt Ryan. They have a good group of receivers. Uh, the defense was coming together a few years back, culminating in that Super Bowl run in 2016. 
But then they're the team that's kind of like graded well every year, and we believe in them, but the record's not very good. And then last year was pretty poor. And uh, essentially the coverage unit secondary has fallen apart. So what are we expecting from the Falcons this season? Well, this is also the team that – Remember when we talked about um, the Washington uh, Washington football team? Whoa. Almost. Good almost. Job. Good job. The Washington football team WFT. has an entire defense, a defensive front that's just stacked with first-round picks. Yeah. And normally when that happens, you've got them from elsewhere when they haven't worked out. That's the Falcons. So the Falcons' entire offensive skill position players are first-round guys. Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, uh, Laquan Treadwell, Todd Gurley, Hayden Hurst, Matt Ryan, all first-round picks. Got some on the offensive line as well. Um, I didn't even realize. I mean, I didn't even think of it through that lens, the fact that they added Treadwell, Gurley, and Hurst all for, you know, I think, this offseason. I think their entire starting unit, including the offensive line, is first round. Jake Matthews, uh, James Carpenter, first round pick, Alex Mack, Chris Lindstrom, wow. and Caleb McGarry. Entire offense that is incredible. His first round <laughs> picks. But this was like the way we said most teams do it, right? right. Which is you acquire them most of the way when they've – fail to live up yeah. to first-round expectations. On the other hand, a lot of these guys have been good. Like, you know, the, the Laquan Treadwells of the world, that's a you know, throwaway reclamation project. But, you know, the offensive line, for example, most of those guys have been good um, or are still young enough that their first-round picks don't mean something. The James Carpenter thing, less so. I mean, you know. But there's a, like, just a lot of talent on this offense, again, as there is every year that the Falcons roll into the season. I also look at the Falcons team. I've used this term, the the whack-a-mole roster building, Mm -hmm. right? There are certain teams who hit a stretch where they feel like they're good everywhere. I mean, that was the Falcons 2016, 17. When you're mock drafting for the Falcons, you're like, this is a luxury pick. You know, they're loaded everywhere. I'm just going to look for the future with this particular mock draft pick or whatever it might be. But then all of a sudden, you start to get some holes. And that was the Falcons, I think. After the 2018 season, this offensive line, which had been solid year after year after year, all of a sudden falls off the map, and the Falcons you know, felt like they had to invest heavily in the offensive line, which they did, but much like what the Texans had to do, they had to go all in on the offensive line in an entire draft, and then all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh, now there's a leak in the secondary. Now there's a leak in the defensive front. We never really found that pass rusher. I mean, I think that's where the Falcons are. They went from this really well-balanced all-around team to then they spend two first-round picks, as you mentioned, Chris Lindstrom, Caleb McGarry in the first round in 2019. And it was like, well, they didn't have the resources to fix the secondary. So the secondary really fell apart last year. And on top of that, the offensive line didn't get the immediate return that you might hope hope for from the two first-round picks. So um, I I think they're one of those teams on paper. It looks flashy because of the first-rounders, because the foundation of Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, and Calvin Ridley, like you're going to win games just with that. Um, It looks nice, but they have questions to answer with that O-line, with the secondary, and with the pass rush. Yeah, I mean, I think inevitably any team ends up in a situation where sooner or later you're going to need to actually hit on some draft picks. Like you actually get in a... It's very rare that a team can sustain the level of roster where for a, a multiple run of seasons you run into the draft and you're like, this team has no needs. They're just picking with right. luxuries, right? You, we've seen it happen a few times, but it doesn't last very long. Like the 49ers went through a run where their roster was so absurd they didn't need anybody. The, the Seahawks had. Um, you know, the, There was a time where the Falcons looked that way as well. Every team 
goes through, or not every team, but a lot of teams go through that stretch where there's a couple of seasons where they just don't have the holes. But the, the nature of the NFL roster, construction, turnover, free agency, very, very soon you're going to hit a period where you actually need to address some positions in the draft. And if you then miss on those picks, you get behind the eight ball, which is what you're talking about, where you then have to, oh, crap, now we've got to fix this spot and the next one that's opened up. And you just get further and further behind until eventually you need to make something significant happen, whether it's with a monster move in the draft or whether it's by throwing a ton of money uh, at people in free agency. So I don't know that it's necessarily an indication of anything for the Falcons that they're now in this spot, but they clearly are. I mean, this is a team that actually needs to hit on some of these draft picks and be right. They really do. Otherwise, they're just in trouble. Let's discuss Matt Ryan just a little bit. I, I think, you know, I keep talking about quarterback tiers, and, um, you know, it's not as just a 1 through 32. There's little sections of players. I think Matt Ryan, uh, depending on who you ask, he's either overrated or underrated, right? I mean, there's either um, kind of like Tony Romo. He's very Tony Romo-ish, right? I mean, year over year, he's, yeah. he's really, really good, but it's like, okay, well, where's the signature win? Or, you know, and he was going to have that, right? He, they were up 28-3 to three in the Super Bowl. It, was, it should have been, uh, you know, that should have been their year. Um, but I think for us, he's a pretty clear tier two type of quarterback, like a Ben Roethlisberger, like a Tony Romo, uh, Phillip Rivers, and again, Russell Wilson up until maybe he, you know, he's evolved his game the last couple of years. Uh, Matt Ryan was a consistent, let's grade in the 80s, high 80s, uh, crept into the 90s that one MVP season last year though a 75.8 grade that was his lowest since 2013 but that ironically was also the last time he was pressured at even a you know a similar rate as what he was last year the offensive line pass blocking grades starting in 2015 went from 82 82 so they were really good 15 and 16 down to 74, up to 78, and then last year bottoming out at 67. By far the worst offensive line situation he's had. And then all of a sudden he's making poor decisions. He's holding on the ball too long, actually inviting too many sacks. Um, so he had his worst season in a while, and I think a lot of it did step, start up front. Yeah, um, I think Ryan is probably the high-end watermark of that quarterback that isn't transcendent, but when you surround him with the right cast, yeah. becomes really good, right? And most of the time when you talk about th those guys, you say, hey, if you, you know, if, if you give Andy Dalton this great supporting cast 2015, he becomes a top 10 quarterback. Like if you give Matt Ryan that level of supporting cast, he looks like an MVP, so I think he's the sort of the very high watermark of that, where if you give him the right supporting cast, he goes from being good to being as good as it gets in the NFL. Um, That's how I've described tier two quarterbacks. I mean, it's like right, more but, often than not, he'll be able to carry or maximize what he has. But if you give him really good, he becomes. But most great. of them, even when you give them really good, there's still a gap between him and, you know, the Russell Wilsons and the Patrick Mahomes of the world. Right. They get yep. they get good, but they don't get amazing. Whereas Ryan, I think when you give him that supporting cast, like he's good enough already that it elevates him to being in that category. Like obviously he doesn't have the skill set of a guy like Mahomes or even Russell Wilson. But if you give him a, a good enough supporting cast, I think he can go toe to toe with those guys and match them. Um, but as you say, he hasn't had that for a while now. So now you sort of see the other end of the scale, like how bad – kind of guy that isn't transcendent get if you dismantle everything around him and that's basically what they've been working with with ryan for a while is 
you know, the, the, his supporting cast has been getting dismantled a little bit. And remember, with, with those quarterbacks, it's both the weapons they have to throw to and it's the offensive line pass blocking for them. Right. And the, the weapons that Ryan's had have still been pretty good, right? He hasn't, those haven't been getting dismantled. But the offensive line has been deteriorating, and it's gone from being one of the best in the NFL to being an issue that has to be fixed. And those, you know, they, they took the swing at it, right? They went with those two first-round picks. And as we said this time a year ago, just don't expect that to work immediately, right? The right. chances of two rookies on the offensive line hitting the ground running in the NFL – are just so small. It almost never happens. But that doesn't mean it won't work this time a year from now, right? Those guys take a little while to, to get functioning in the NFL, but if they are as good as you think they are, it'll be a pick that makes sense somewhere down the line. This is the time for it to make sense. Like those two first-round picks on the right side of that offensive line to differentiate them from all the other first-round picks. Um, right. Like this is the year they the need to stand up, ones. right? If they get those picks right, and if Chris Lindstrom and Caleb McGarry take giant steps forward, or if one of them takes a giant step forward, and the other one becomes possible. Lindstrom was all right. He just only saw the field for 309 snaps. Right. It was, McGarry was the issue. 53 overall grade. That was 79th. But if, like, if the baseline, tackles. if the average, if the net from those two guys becomes two average offensive linemen, it's a win. Oh, absolutely. And if they become good, it's huge. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I described Matt Ryan in my Falcons preview was essentially, you know, I highlighted all the same stuff I said earlier. Last year was uncharacteristic in a few ways, but I think when you break it down, he still hit open receivers at a high rate. He's still one of the better intermediate uh, passers in the NFL, which is your most valuable area thrown to the field, that 10 to 19-yard range. And if you just – it was the same thing we said about Kirk Cousins a couple of years ago. Like, if you just give him 4 to 5% more clean pockets – and I know some of that's on the quarterback, but – when the O-line is that bad. And these were the lowest pass and run blocking grades of the Matt Ryan era. Yeah. Um, so that's dating back to 2008, the lowest from the offensive line. If you just give him 4 or 5% more, you know, clean pockets, he'll be better. You know, he'll be back grading in the 80s. Um, he'll be throwing to Julio, who's still the best all-around receiver in the NFL. Calvin Ridley, I think, has a, a strong case to be the, the best number two receiver in the NFL. However you define number two, he's extre- He's explosive. Uh, knows how to get open. I, I think from a receiving standpoint, the question will be like, are they too? Ironically, we're gonna, I'm going to compare them to Diggs and Thielen, where mm-hmm. the number three a couple of years ago, for a few years in Minnesota was Laquan Treadwell. Um, do they need a good number three because they're losing Austin Hooper, who was a really good third option, who you know benefited from having those receivers on the outside. But I feel like the Falcons too could could use a third threat uh, among the wide receivers well particularly because unlike the vikings they actually use that third receiver a lot more like yeah. the vikings when we last podcast we were making the point that yeah they could really use this third receiver but on the other hand they don't actually use a third receiver that much now how much of that is cause versus effect but the falcons use a third receiver a lot more than the vikings do so you could make the case that hey it's, it's, it's the same need, but it's a bigger one for Atlanta because they actually run more 11 personnel than Minnesota does. Yeah, so, I, yeah, and, and, you know, again, I keep saying you want to be an offense that makes life difficult on opposing defenses. I think the Falcons are, are there, but my concern is even if the offensive line's back on track, like I don't love Austin Hooper, but he was definitely a good compliment. I do expect Hayden Hurst. He's got some after-the-catch ability. Uh, former first-rounder. He's almost 30 years old now, right? Um, he should benefit statistically. So, again, I don't 
I don't think the offense is going to be an issue. Last year at this time, we were saying Matt Ryan is poised for a big year. He's got his first, like, 12 games indoors and all this stuff. I have to add that to the Matt Ryan analysis. I mentioned the domes all the time. There is – it is easier to throw indoors. You're going to play nine minimum indoor games every single year uh, if you're the Falcons or the Saints in that, um, in that division – um, so Matt Ryan set up again, you know, if you're playing fantasy or if you're going to be signing up for underdog fantasy, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, Matt Ryan's a good, a good player to have because you can go on those runs when you have favorable environments. Um, Todd Gurley is added there. And I, I think the football community is smarter to think, well, the Falcons added a former MVP candidate. They're good. What's Austin telling you right now? Do I need an update? No, he's telling us that he's uh, he's telling us during the podcast that he's updated the podcast document for us to uh, for us to read things out. I, personally, I might have told us that before the podcast started, but you know, let him let him be him. I'm not going to tell anyone how to do their job. I'm not going to do it. Just always inside baseball here. Yeah, you know, we're just a step slow here. Just step slow. I need somebody to tell me what to. I need somebody to update the teleprompter so I can read it. Todd Gurley. Todd Gurley. So a lot, I, I haven't heard too much of this, like, well, they're adding a former MVP candidate in Todd Gurley. Um, on the other end, you know, when he's healthy, he's a good running back, you know, and I think um, he's never been a great uh, maximizer of run blocking, but he's been a good uh, take advantage of good run blocking guy. How's that? Yeah. Right? You give him good zone blocking, the dude can make a cut, get upfield, and pick up some yards. He can contribute in the pass game. So... You know, I think he'll be a, a decent weapon, you know, compared to what Devontae Freeman's been the last couple of years, especially. Well, so Gurley's become this interesting uh, discussion point, right? Because he's almost like the poster boy for running backs are a product of their environment because he was awful, looked like a disaster, and then suddenly the Rams built the best run-blocking offensive line in football, and he looked great. Um, and then that offensive line fell to pieces, and he looked bad again, right? So it's, it's this direct line between offensive line blocking and how he's performed. But you have the complicating factor of his injuries and this degenerative arthritis and whatever impact that has, right? And it's also basically, well, it's a direct line in, in terms of correlation between the injury if you ignore what happened before they got the really good offensive line, right? So there's a, book, uh, there's a group of people out there that are like, Todd Gurley was amazing, was an MVP, was phenomenal. Um, then he got injured, and his knee's never going to be the same, and now he's not that guy anymore, right? Now, for those people, I would like to ask, well, what happened before he got injured but before the offensive line got good when Gurley looked yeah. like crap, right? Like, right. how do you explain that part? To which I suspect the answer would basically just be Jeff Fisher, right? The, the, whoever is arguing that would basically just say that was Jeff Fisher, nothing was good, right? Which is, again, to a degree, there's some truth there. But what I'm saying is that, you know, uh, Todd Gurley is now leaving the Rams where the offensive line is garbage again, going to the Falcons, which hopefully will be a better uh, situation for him. But there is the complicating factor of the knee injury, right? Which people are saying, anyone who's watching Falcons camp and are like, look, he looks okay. But, like, when the drill stops, he's, like, limping around the place. Like, this is something that affects him just walking around, not, not even, you know, 100% full speed in drills. Like, this is, this is clearly a thing that, that actually affects him on a day-to-day -day basis, at which point there is a fair argument that, like, no matter how good that offensive line gets, 
Todd Gurley is not going to look like MVP candidate Todd Gurley. He's, that guy isn't there anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's all fair. Uh, just to touch on the offensive line quickly, Jake Matthews is one of the better left tackles in the league. Alex Mack, one of the best centers in the league. And then it's James Carpenter, who you said, question. Uh, Chris Lindstrom, 309 snaps. I think he'll be okay from what we saw in college in the NFL. And then Caleb McGarry, who they took in the first round, struggled last year, as I said, but felt more like that classic third-round developmental prospect right. that they traded up to get in the first round. So they need uh, – you know, he's a lot like a Colton Miller from the Raiders. You know, guys that probably should have gone later um, went in the first round, and you know they're taking time to develop. So offensively, I think overall – you have a good foundation, as I mentioned. You have Ryan, Julio, and Ridley. That should carry you to a certain point. Then it becomes, does a receiver step up? Do you finally get wide receiver three from Laquan Treadwell? Russell Gage has flashed a little bit, but he's become more, more of a possession guy. Hayden Hurst, um, I think, can take advantage of some open you know, underneath routes and stuff in this offense. I mean, I from a fantasy standpoint, a lot of people like him because I think he'll produce. If he stays healthy, I honestly think Hayden Hurst is an upgrade for them over Austin Hooper. Really? I mean, yeah. We, we've talked the whole time about how Hooper is basically just this product of what they scheme open, right? His grade on stuff that's like schemed open in the zone is high and it's so great. 70, 75% of his yards right. have come, just to, to, remember, to remind us of this. So we track, you know, like, um, what type of coverage it is. Is it single coverage? Is it a hole in zone? Is it underneath the defense? All that stuff. 75% have come from hole in zone or underneath the defense, yes. essentially. Basically, a quarter That's of Austin his, Hooper. Right. A quarter of his production has been him actually beating anybody on the play, right? Yep. Now, you can't dismiss the other 75% because there is a skill to identifying yep. that, to sitting it, in the right place. That's by far the highest percentage in the yes. world. Yes. There, there is a skill to doing that, right? But it's a very achievable skill versus having the athleticism and the smarts to actually beat man coverage, right? Yep. Particularly for a tight end where those, those spaces are there by design, right? You are being opened up and all you have to do is recognize that it's happening and stop. Um, so a huge proportion of Hooper's production has been that, right? And there's a certain degree of like reinforcing priors here and that I didn't love the guy as a prospect. So the fact that this backs up my original take is I'm all on board, right? Of course. So there's a huge part of me that wants to be like, look, this guy is basically just a product of the system, and I'm not expecting him to be great in Cleveland. And more to the point, it shows that the system is, is there and then some for a tight end. Now you bring in a guy like Hayden Hurst, who was outperformed by Mark Andrews in Baltimore, but when he did get on the field, like you could see the athleticism and you could see the big playmaking ability. Like he's got... He's got skills that Austin Hooper does not have in terms of the ability to actually hurt a defense. If he just knows where to stop and like turn around and catch the ball, he'll. I think he'll do better than than Hooper because that role isn't disappearing. Like the the production, the the opportunities are going to be there for him to have a ton of free plays. Yeah. Plus whatever he can do after the catch, he's good after the catch. Like he's. Um, the thing I liked about him as a prospect is he got after it after the catch, and he kind of, and he got after it in the run game. So he wasn't he's not the most athletic guy, but like he's fierce, you know, right. with the ball in his hands. And, and he's, he's a hell of a lot more He's not the best athletic. run blocker, but he works hard at it. And he's a know? hell of a lot more athletic than Hooper is. Yeah, I think so. So um, let's give it a shot here. Offense, I think they're going to be okay. I think they're going to be in a lot of games. It's going to come down to this defense, though. Can they yeah. cover? Can they cover? The uh, back seven, um, just to reiterate the recent years here, the Falcons did not have a good defense. 
They kind of came together during the Super Bowl year. They were probably better in 2017, especially Deion Jones looked like the best – he was the best coverage linebacker in the NFL that year, making game-ending plays, game-changing plays. 2018, Deion Jones misses time, and that whole back seven falls apart. They can't stop anybody. And then last year, even with Deion Jones on the field, it was one of the worst groups of – it was one of the worst secondaries in the NFL. And they came into the offseason saying, okay, where do we go here? And they're going into the season saying, okay, our starting corners are some combination of Isaiah Oliver, who's played you know, a little bit and not great, former second-round pick. A.J. Terrell, their first-round pick out of Clemson, who has some warts. You know, he's, he's had some really good games. He did get, uh, compared to other first-round picks, he got beat you know, a, a little bit more. Kendall Sheffield, who flashed some ability last year as a fourth-round pick. Um, Jordan Miller, 2019 fifth-round pick. I mean, they don't have many options at cornerback that you go into the season saying, hey, I feel good about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the defense generally, I think we're just looking at a relative lack of talent compared with certainly where they used to be compared to some other teams. Um, They're in that spot of they need some of these – well, they need A.J. Terrell basically to play really well for them to have any kind of shot. Yeah. it's it's like what we were saying about the offensive line. Like if that was a pick for this year, it's risky. Like that's just tough to expect a rookie to hit the ground running and be good. Um, a pick for the future, fine, but this team kind of needs him to actually hold his own. Uh, you, you know, the training camp videos has been him one on one with Julio Jones the whole time. I mean, that might accelerate your development a little bit yeah. dealing with that every week in practice. But like, there's a lot on his shoulders to be good right out of the gate. And it, it, you remember the Panthers used to have this defense that was like there was one star at every level, yeah. but nothing else. So, you know, up front it was uh, Kawan Short, Kawan Short. Um, mm-hmm. Then the middle it was Luke Keekley, And then the back end there was Josh Norman for, for that amazing season. Uh, this is kind of how I feel about this defense, right? Like up front you've got Grady Jarrett, who's one of the most underrated defensive linemen in the NFL. Um, over the past two years, I think. He's got, like, the best grade that isn't Aaron Donald, obviously right. with the, the standard caveat. The non-Aaron Donald. Yeah, he's division. got, I think, the best grade. It's above 90 over two years. Um, Deion Jones in the middle. And then, you know, whether it's whether A.J. Terrell plays well or not, but Keanu Neal is, is the star in the secondary. So you've got those three guys, all of whom, A, need to play their best game, and then, B, they need some help from somewhere. And it's hard to know where it's coming from looking at the rest of this group. You mentioned all the first-round picks on the offensive line. Let's discuss all the first-round picks on the defensive line now. They bring in – so they have been throwing first-round picks at edge rushers for a while here. Vic Beasley was one of them. He's out. Um, But Tack McKinley, their 2017 first-rounder. They bring in Dante Fowler. Uh, They traded for Charles Harris. It's a whole bunch of retread first-rounders. And then Grady Jarrett, who you mentioned, who should have been a first-rounder, was a PFF first-rounder, but went in the fifth round. He's obviously been the best of the bunch. Um, And then they spent their second-round pick on Marlon Davidson. He's a 300-pounder who essentially played on the edge at Auburn. Um, I'm wary about projecting him because he played so much outside the tackles last year at Auburn. And it was one of those, like, here's an impressive rush from a 300-pounder and a guy bending the edge and all these different things. But I don't think he's going to be doing that not on this, this defense either, with those guys I mentioned, with Tack, um, you know, with Dante Fowler, with Chris, Charles Harris, they're going to be on the outside. Like Marlon Davidson needs to win on the interior, and he, again, he showed that he could do it a little bit. He just doesn't have much experience there. So expectations for both, first round, uh, the, both of their top two picks, A.J. Terrell and Marlon Davidson, are 
high. Like they need both of those guys to contribute right away. I, I just have my doubts right now. Yeah, the one to talk about, I think, is Dante Fowler, right? Because you bring him in, he was playing second fiddle to Aaron Donald with the Rams and had a career year, and he comes in, you know, 15-sack season, right? 15 so sacks. if you're just looking at, like, the box score numbers, you're like, wow, 15-sack season, we were massively upgraded the pass rush, right? We shipped off one underachiever in Vic Beasley, and we bring in a guy who had 15 sacks last season. Everything's looking up. And look, so... 15 sacks, 67 total pressures, which is probably the more important number, right? We preach all the time that sacks are a bad way of predicting future performance. They're, Do you see the Packers coach rant yes. on that? That was yes. good. I don't want to say they're lucky, but they are subject to sacks. luck. About sacks. sacks. Yeah. They're, they're not necessarily lucky plays, but they are subject to a lot of luck and a lot of outside influence, right? So immediately you're far better off focusing on pressure than you are sacks if you're looking to predict a guy's future performance now that it, it, you're better but it doesn't mean you're great right pressure is not a it's not a golden um it's not a silver bullet either so 67 total pressures which is good but his pass rush grade was 73.3 which is okay i think it's the best of his career but it's not like you know elite right elite pass rush grades are 90 the same way they are with every other um facet and pffs Numbers So 73 is obviously not in that uh, category. But um, so how do you how do you explain that? Right. And a huge part of it is those unblocked clean up the stuff that other people are causing. Right. Other people like Aaron Donald, like an Aaron Donald, Aaron Donald comes up the middle, wrecks a blocking scheme. The play's gone to hell. The quarterback's moving around. And oh, look, here's Dante Fowler cleaning it up. Um, And a huge part of the Rams relative inefficiency before is that Donald was making these plays and there was nobody on the edge to deal with it, right? He would cause chaos. Quarterback would just bounce outside and make a play anyway. Now, Fowler at least helped some of that, but I would be very wary. And I know we just talked about how good Grady Jarrett is, but he's not Aaron Donald, right? He's right. He may be the next best thing, but there's still a huge gulf between Grady Jarrett and Aaron Donald. So I think you just have to be wary about expecting the 15 sacks to repeat or even the 67 pressures to repeat because if, you know, if, if the huge proportion of his cleanup and unblocked pressure disappears, you're left with a guy that isn't actually winning one-on-one that often. Because the better, the better number than even pressures is the pass rush grade. And yes. essentially, Dante Fowler had a career-high 73.3 pass rush grade last year, which is fine. That's good. It's solid. That usually doesn't translate to 67 pressures. You know, nope. that's, that's the thing, right? So that's w- another way of, you know, using premium stats 2.0. And you can go look at Fowler's pass rush grades. They've, they've literally gotten better every year. So that's good. Mm-hmm. He's on the upward trajectory. He's, he's kind of a late-blooming uh, former first-rounder. He was good in the run game last year. He had his best year. He has gotten better every single season. Um, but... To expect, yeah, 67 pressures and 15 sacks might be a little rich. Right. So 24 of those pressures were either cleanup, yep. unblocked, or pursuit plays, right? Which are not – it's not to say those are worthless, but it's those are plays you expect any edge rusher to make, right? If yeah. you're playing – if you're pass- Those are dependent if, plays, essentially. You're dependent yes. on other stuff, either the exactly. quarterback holding the ball too long, you're dependent on opportunities sometimes, or you're just dependent on you know other pressure. That's a really teams. good way of putting it, I think. So more Thank than you. a third of his pressure – last year was dependent on something else yep. so if those circumstances don't present themselves again this year you're, a third of his pressure has immediately disappeared and if you take it that down and you go from 67 to 42 or whatever that is that's not great yeah like 42 is 
rank average, essentially, for a guy on the edge. So Charles Harris, I mentioned too, former first-round pick, didn't have his uh, 50-year option picked up by the Miami Dolphins. Um, I don't mind taking flyers on those types of guys. Harris has never learned how to really like win with power. Um, and he, when I wrote his scouting report uh, a couple years ago, I was like, hey, best spin move in college football, which is like, eh, probably not the best, you know, that's not the thing you're going to hang your hat on at the next level unless you have other ways to win, and Harris hasn't really shown that. So they're stitching it together up front with the defensive line. There's a lot of pressure, I think, on Grady Jarrett to be really good again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Foye Olukun, the other linebacker next to uh, Deion Jones, speedy guy. I mean, I, I think a little bit more play from him next to Deion Jones if those guys stay healthy. It's, it's, a, it's a good group of linebackers, I think, for today's NFL. I like watching those guys play. Olukun has... Um, played a little bit of football, but I think he'll have he'll have more opportunities uh, this year next to Deion Jones. He had a 62 grade last year, but he's flashed some ability in coverage. 310 snaps last season. Devondre Campbell moves on, who never really never really panned out as the the coverage player that they expected. But um, I think they'll be. I think they just have so many questions on the back end. It's yeah. tough to. I mean, you know, a it's lot, tough to believe in the Falcons going forward here in this season. Like I say, a lot rests on A.J. Terrell, but I can see a world. Like, if he plays well as a rookie, I, I can see the secondary actually being okay. Like, Keanu Neal um, was a surprise player to us, but it's clearly a difference maker for that secondary, even if he hasn't quite sort of replicated his, you know, hit the ground running and made us look like idiots. But since then, like, he hasn't really gotten back to that level. Um, so... He's a big player for them. Ricardo Allen's a solid player. Like Isaiah Oliver is okay if he doesn't have to be the number one. I explained away the Keanu Neal thing, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because you, because it, we only had one year of data, and he didn't grade well. But it was when you <laughs> dug into the data and said, okay, when he played free safety at Florida, which he was asked to do a lot, he was really bad. But when he played in the box and you know he played the role that he's playing in the NFL, that he did a nice job. So that would actually be kind of a win for the data, I think, in hindsight, because if you if you dig into it the right way, you can slot the player in where he needs to go in the NFL. Yeah, I mean... Plus, nobody remembers that we missed on Keanu Neal five years ago. You didn't have to bring it up. Okay, yeah. I mean, maybe a better point is that like he hasn't actually replicated that season since. No, he hasn't. So he, He's still living off that. Right, he played rep. the next year and wasn't nearly as good, particularly in coverage, and then basically hasn't played the last two years because of injury. He's also one of those flashy, strong, like big hit here, big hit yeah, there, yeah. and it's, you know, missed tackles. Like, right. He's still not great. He's like the Rashawn Evans thing, right? It's, yeah. it's, he's a highlight reel player, um, which automatically, like those guys are always overrated because you're not paying attention to the stuff that isn't in the highlights. You're only seeing the big plays that look great. But whatever, I, I, think, I think he's solid, right? And if everything else around him is good, I think he'd be good. So I, I think there's a world in which this secondary is good, but the whole thing hinges on A.J. Terrell being able to hold up essentially as a starting slash number one corner, which, you know, for a rookie is always tough. Where do you think the Falcons end up in this division? The third best team in the division, and I don't actually know if they will be that good. Yeah, I, I posed at the top of the show – could it be the best division in football? And it's based off of, like, we could see the Saints with 12 wins, the Bucks with 11, and, like, the Falcons with 9. I mean, and then the Falcons, you know, maybe the Panthers with not as many. <laughs> um, so maybe it's not as deep. You know, we'll talk about the NFC West, where it feels like every team could win 8-plus. But this division feels like you could have two double-digit digit win teams in the Saints and the Bucks, And then the Falcons, again, because they have the pass game foundation, you know, could be... You know, could make some moves as well. Uh, let's move on to the Carolina Panthers. 
they're a team that I think coming into the offseason, you're like, all right, this is full rebuild mode, right? Luke Keekley's retiring. You're moving on from Cam Newton. I think you know, so many the whole defense needed to be overhauled, and that's all they did in the draft is draft defensive players, which we'll discuss. But then you have, you know, every teams don't go full tank, right? They just don't do that for the most part. And I'm not saying I'm not even going to argue whether or not they should. But the Panthers have an intriguing offense. You know, they traded try uh, try uh, Turner, <laughs> Trey Turner for Russell Okun, which I think a lot of people are like, why would you do that? I mean, Okun's a reasonable tackle. He's older, but when he's healthy, he's a good tackle. They're tough to find. In a if you were not in a rebuilding situation. I'd be all, all for Okun at tackle. They bring in Robbie Anderson. You have DJ Moore, who emerged last year. So it's a decent group of receivers. And they signed Teddy Bridgewater hmm. to a deal to be the bridge quarterback or to figure out if he's the quarterback. Right. So, hang on, just to put a bow on the Falcons thing, right? They, they were 7-9 and nine last year. I didn't know you needed a bow. I, yeah, I need a bow. Usually we, I know when you need a bow. And now no, no, I'm, I'm throwing the bow in now. Now it looks like we're not on the same page. Right. They were 7-9 they were and nine last year, and that was before Tom Brady was with the Bucks. Like, that was with Jameis Winston, you know, the nothing Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Like, now we're expecting the Saints to be as good as they've ever been, the Bucks to suddenly be a Super Bowl contender as well. In the same, like, you know what I mean? Things got harder for them, and yep. they were only 7-9 and nine last year. So I can easily see a world in which the Falcons that everyone expects to be quite good actually only win like five, six games and are picking in the top ten. Anyway, on to the, the, the Panthers. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. Teams don't usually go for this like full-on tank mode. And I think part of that is because I think people underestimate how much of an NFL roster turns over from year to year. Like generally you're talking about a quarter of all rosters are not the same year to year. So this, this idea that everybody has every offseason is like, well, we had this team that won 12 games last year. We added this one guy in the offseason. Therefore, we're 13, 14 wins. We're Super Bowl bound, baby. Right. It's like, yeah, but there's 24 other guys changed on the roster. Now, okay, they were depth players for the most part. Like your starters may have, may have stayed intact. But a quarter of your roster this year is not the same than it was a year ago. Plus any coaching changes or anything that happened on the back end. Plus, by the way, 25% of everybody you're going to be playing is different as well. So, like, the entire league is a completely different entity than it was a year ago. And even if you had just run it back, football is such a crazy game that it wouldn't result in the same results anyway. Yeah, of course. So, I I think that's part of the reason, right, is that the – the turnover is already so insane that you can like quickly revamp a roster in like one two years without Which, having to go into full tank mode. All, and all of that is why I think when coaches coaches they're it's amazing they're so short sighted when they're like all we need to do is improve this uh, right. third and short offense and we'll be all right and we'll win two more games or like you know we missed three game winning kicks just get us a kicker and we got fourteen wins or whatever it is you know right. it's like no that's that's not how it works yeah because if you run it back again you're never going to be in the situation where you have three game winning kicks that decide your future in the first place right the kicker would be irrelevant if you just did exactly the same thing over because things wouldn't yeah. break the same way so anyway I, I think the Panthers have kind of gone into a full on rebuild and not just like with the team but like from the the franchise like this organization from the top down has been completely rebuilt. Um, down to like new you know training facilities and all these kinds yep. of things like Bad they are coming in they are institutionally rebuilding this from the moment that the new ownership came on um, so yeah new coaching staff which I think is a really intriguing one in particular 
because they get Joe Brady at offensive coordinator, and he's the guy that came from that LSU offense that was so devastating last season with Joe Burrow, um, you know, get national title, all that kind of thing. And you wrap this whole thing up, and I think there's there's talent on this offense. Now, it's not complete, and there's some holes, but you bring in a Teddy Bridgewater who, at the very minimum, I think is a capable starting NFL quarterback. And he's one where there's there's always been these additional questions or mitigating circumstances or, or other influences that sort of muddy, muddy the water or, or uh, obscure the picture to try and figure out exactly what he is, right? Even with the Minnesota Vikings where he was at his best, like he was grading pretty well for us, but he felt like this Derek Carr type of conservative quarterback who there was always something a bit missing, right? But he was trapped in this offense that was very – it felt very dated at the time, and it was running a lot of maximum protect, two receivers in the pattern, didn't give him a lot of places to go with the ball, right? So Who was the OC then? It was North Turner. Panthers OC? Not now. Last couple of years? Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Full circle. But the thing is that sort of – and North Turner's offense, like – developed he's evolved oh he's absolutely evolved since it is funny because norv did evolve it with cam newton who probably would have been better at running his original offense like norv is one of these um offensive coordinators or or offensive coaches whose system sort of perfected itself in the 90s right yeah and then like that vikings era he was still playing that sort of 90s era style which is we only need two receivers in patterns we go max protect we rely on the deep chunk play but the problem is if your receivers aren't great and the Vikings weren't at that point, it, you either do two things, right? You either become hyper-aggressive and you just throw YOLO balls all day at very unsure deep targets, or you get forced into basically checking it down every play, right? Because you'd go the seven-step drop back, the play action, you look up, the guy's not open, it's like, crap, what do I do? Give it a chance, and then I'll dump it off to the running back, Right. So the question becomes, is Teddy Bridgewater inherently a check-down Derek Carr style of quarterback, or was he just sort of forced that way by this offense? And then he gets the devastating knee injury, gets put on the shelf, goes to the Saints, and whenever he gets on the field there, it's like mop-up duty or it's with the backups in preseason. So you never really get to see what he is anymore. Then he finally gets that chance last season with Breeze going down, and for the first couple of weeks of the season, he looks like the same timid uh, check down kind of quarterback, and then something changed in the Tampa Bay game, and he started to unleash yeah, he it a bit further. Played the Bucks at home. Well, the Bucks defense is good. Yeah, they got better down the stretch. They're all right. The so he started to take some more shots, started to go more aggressive down the field, and again, it's kind of like the Lamar Jackson thing, right? He didn't jump from like the bottom of the league to the top. He jumped from the bottom to the middle. Like he didn't become a hyper aggressive quarterback. He just became middle of the pack, right? Which was more than good enough to take advantage of the other good stuff. But ultimately, it's like a five-game sample size, right? So did something actually change, or did he just did he just catch a run? Did he play the Bucks, or did you know did he just hit the upside of inevitable swings and, and roundabouts? So I, I think Bridgewater is an interesting quarterback because I think his ceiling is actually pretty high. Not you know he's never going to be a, a um, an elite quarterback, but he could be in that Matt Ryan tier of I'm a good quarterback, and if what? you give me a supporting cast, I can be a very good quarterback. Matt Ryan tier? No. Well, Matt Ryan tier on the basis that tier three on the basis that Matt Ryan is a tier two quarterback, albeit the ceiling of a Bridgewater tier two quarterback. Bridgewater can be. I, I think Bridgewater's the 
bottom of tier three. The bottom of tier three. Yeah, that's your – in tier three is where I put Cam, Stafford, Cousins, uh, Derek Carr. Alex Smith was there throughout his career. I mean, I think he can be at the top end of that. I don't think he's better than those guys. Uh, there's too many question marks with it right now. And, and again, he had – his good PFF grades are on the conservative end of the uh, – the conservative end, right? Each one of those other guys that I've mentioned, Stafford and Carr, they've had more aggressive years where they graded well, too. We still haven't seen that from Bridgewater. Like the, you like to take this one game against the Bucks and like extrapolate it going it's forward. one game. It's from that point on. What was that, two games? Three. It was the Bears, Bucks, the Bears. I mean, you're extrapolating things going you know, a little bit. Yeah, but like that's, that's what I'm saying. My point with him is that that's the only evidence we have because you've got the Vikings era, which is massively affected by the situation there. Then you've got the knee injury. And then from that point on, there's almost no evidence. And the evidence that we do get is obfuscated by the fact that he had a – it was, it was mop-up duty where he didn't have to pass or it was – backups in preseason where like a second team offensive line in today's NFL is like it's non-workable it's like a complete waste of time you can't evaluate a quarterback behind a second team offensive line oh I know it's completely unviable get it so the same thing I say about Nick Foles we get more Teddy data points this year last year um, the top two quarterbacks and most open throws uh, Teddy Bridgewater and Drew Brees it was in that offense you know so you had more open throws you had an offense that plays to the receiver's strengths really well, plays to the quarterback's strengths, and now Joe Brady's coming in to run this offense with his Saints ties. He was he gets credit for being the architect at LSU. Still, people don't completely know exactly what his role was in Joe Burrow's breakout last year, but he's at least cashed in on it. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to see a Saints-like offense. And I think if you had to describe the Sean Payton, Drew Brees era, I think from a scheme and style standpoint you kept it simple you would just say i think they put playmakers in position to succeed and i think they'll do a good job of saying robbie anderson is going to be the deep threat now curtis samuel was you know square peg round hole last year trying to be the deep threat and it was a disaster the exact numbers are absurd i'll get them in a second here um here it is he was uh, curtis samuel was targeted 27 times on 20 plus yard throws that was 10th most in the league last year and then he had the second lowest percentage of actual – or second lowest completion percentage, 18.5% on those plays. They just kept trying to chuck it deep to Curtis Samuel. I like the well-rounded receiving core. So you have DJ Moore, who was really good last year, short and intermediate level. Robbie Anderson, your deep threat. Curtis Samuel now, okay, go be the number three. Go be the gimmick player, the jet sweep guy. Work out of the slot. I like that as a combo. And I do think Teddy's going to be in position to uh, – to show his stuff with this group and a decent offensive line. I mean, the credentials for Joe Brady are great, even if, he, like, regardless of whether he was the exact architect or not, he's coming from that Saints offense that we saw the best Teddy Bridgewater in. He went to the LSU offense, which became this absurd juggernaut, albeit with you know one of the best quarterback prospects we've seen in years come along. It's always how much was him, how much was the offense. So if you're designing an offense that would fit Teddy Bridgewater, it's this. It's the system that's that he's being brought into. So that, I think, is a perfect fit. I agree. I think there's enough to work with with the receiving weapons. And Christian McCaffrey. Yes. Tight end is a question mark, but Ian Thomas has at least shown the skills to be a, a, let me a just receiving re- playmaker. Let me repeat myself again, though. Ranking these tight end groups was brutal, and this is one of them. This was one of those teams that should have been tied 
tied with six other teams for last. Ian Thomas and Chris Manhurts are the top two guys, and then a whole bunch of guys who haven't played snaps. That is a, you know, not a position you're expecting to get a whole lot of production out of. Yeah, I mean, I think Thomas was hurt a bit by, you know, when he was a rookie, they were really high on him. Um, and Greg, uh, Greg Olson was sort of banged up a lot, and he got some opportunities. And then Greg Olson actually gets back and plays, and Thomas basically just takes a seat, right? It's like... <laughs> You're not a factor anymore because Greg Olson is actually is going to be getting all the targets. So I don't, I don't know that we've seen enough from him to be able to write him off completely. Um, I, I think he's still got some skills, right? He's got movement skills. He's got uh, athleticism. He could be a pretty good player, but obviously now like he needs. To, it's a big jump, right? Now he's the starter. Now he's the guy that's going to get whatever targets going towards the tight end. Um, he he need, has a a lot is being asked of him. He needs to step up. Um, offensive line-wise, um, the Panthers, believe it or not, actually have one of the better tackle duos in the league with Russell Okung and uh, Taylor Moton, both um, assuming they're both healthy. You know, that's that's actually a really good duo. John Miller, Matt, pa- Matt Paradis really struggled last year, first time mm. in the system, new system, not being protected by that zone-heavy uh, Denver scheme that he really excelled in. We'll see another new system here. For him to adjust to, I say the question marks are more on the interior here for the Panthers, but they're also one of those teams where it's like, all right, you get the bookends all right. If you could kind of, you know, get by on the interior, they're not bad. So, for a team that again feels like they should be in, feels like they are in full rebuild mode, this offense is good enough. You said they're not as good as the Falcons' offense, I don't think, but you think Teddy's. Matt Ryan, so maybe you do. I don't think they're as good as the Falcons' offense. You said they're going to win five or six. I think the Panthers have a chance to win five or six because of this offense. And then, much like the Falcons, the question marks occur on the defensive side. There, yeah, I think there's a huge – the offensive line hinges on what level of performance you're going to get out of Matt Paradis, I think. Um, in that Denver outside zone system, he was one of the best centers in the NFL. Last season – he allowed 47 pressures from center. That's, that is absurd. That's Rodney Hudson has allowed, I think, 55 in 10 years. <laughs> 10 really years. Crazy. Now, Rodney Hudson is like the best pass-blocking center we've seen it's since he great. But like Matt Paradis allowed almost as much pressure last year as Rodney Hudson has allowed in a decade of two different teams. It's, like, it's nuts. He was awful last year in terms of his, particularly against the pass, um, and again, so part of that is like, I mean, in theory, the pass is independent. It's not entirely right because a lot of the pass blocking from in those outside zone schemes is like it's easier. It's not true pass sets because it's play action. It's set off off the run action stuff, right? Yeah. So it's influenced. But in theory, you wouldn't expect there to be that much of an effect in the pass game um, just determined on the – just impacted by the run blocking schemes that you're running up front but apparently either they were or parodies just fell off that big a cliff so a huge thing is how does he play in the new offense which i mean it runs a reasonable amount of like gap scheme blocks like the, the new orleans if you look at what they run the, the the biggest percentage of plays they run is outside zone um but they mix it up they're pretty well right well but they're rounded. they are much more sort of well-rounded offensive right. scheme than that, right? They run a decent amount of, of gap schemes, like up to 20% of their plays inside zone is a big amount. Um, you know, j- 
basic power. Like they they run everything. So if he's not going to if he's only viable as like a zone blocking center. He's going to have problems. He'll be still. exposed again. Yeah, yeah. Thirteen more pressures allowed. I mean, again, you said run and pass is different. Thirteen more pressures allowed than any other center. Yeah, it was nuts. Year. That needs to get better. So, like, he he either needs to figure out how to play in you know everything, or they need to change because or that'll be a weakness. Like, if here's, sorry, here's the other part of this whole Panthers team that it felt like they're in full rebuild mode, but they also locked up Christian McCaffrey long term. Um, without spending 10 minutes on running backs and value and stuff like that. But where do you stand on that? You've got the face. He's the face of the team. And while we wouldn't say, we, we would say you're not going to get your dollar, you're not going to get dollar for dollar return there. But not every business decision is based on dollar for dollar return. How impo- like, What would you do with Christian McCaffrey um, prior to locking him up, and what do you think about his prospects going forward? He's been the most valuable running back by our war metrics since 2017. There's certainly an argument from a getting fans excited standpoint. Like if you if you didn't lock up Christian McCaffrey, like who is the face of this team? Like, does that matter? Luke Keekley from a marketing standpoint, yes. Like it's, there's a certain yeah. degree of dollars that are tied to jersey sales, mar- you know, whatever. Like buying something with a guy's face attached to it. Like if it's not if it's not McCaffrey, who is it? Like Bridgewater's not getting people excited. Keekley's gone. It's not Derek Brown. I mean, Kawan Short is still a good player, but you're not like he's not moving the needle in terms of sales. Like there's nobody left. So from that point of view, I can absolutely understand saying, look, it's worth dedicating a chunk of that cap to this guy because he is our jersey sales right now and, and all those kinds of things. Um, from a purely football point of view. It's an interesting discussion because he's apparently been working out with the receivers in training camp. You know, he's been, like, doing drills with those guys. We said all the way along that I think Christian McCaffrey is one of the few running backs that could also play slot receiver in the NFL and yeah. be good at it, right? Like, he's in the – Danny Woodhead was this for a while. Like, he swapped oh, between the two positions. Yeah. Um, I, I think Christian McCaffrey could do that. He's got the hands. He's got the right running skills. He could play slot receiver and be a good player. Percy Harvin was a guy that could do it too. Different style players, but they absolutely like. Well, his question mark Percy was more: Could, could he be both. an every down running back as opposed to could yeah. he switch between two? But anyway, McCaffrey has shown that he can be an every down running back, and I think he's got the skills to be a, a, a skillful receiver as well. The problem is that he hasn't yet, so he hasn't really shown the data that says that it's worth it, right? In terms of. So the, the theory is, and this was the theory with the Le'Veon Bell or with David Johnson, that if you get these guys that have the skill set to split out into the slot or split out wide and run receiver patterns, they're immeasurably more valuable, right? Because that stresses these defenses. They go, oh, no, and they got to put a linebacker out there, and that's a big play, and it's a touchdown, and boom, right? The problem is when you run the numbers, it doesn't actually happen that often, right? Like every now and again, you'll, we can all remember the play, right, where they split out a linebacker and that guy just gets eviscerated and it's a huge mistake. I think because those plays happen every now and again on highlights, it sticks in your mind as like a huge critical flaw in defenses and something they can't deal with. But when you look at the data, it's actually not a problem. Like defenses are way better at dealing with that than you think they are, and it's, it's just that every now and again there's a bust and you remember it. So my point is that these guys, that when they split out, it's actually not hurting a defense that much. And this was my premise behind the idea of these hybrid players, right? What's, what scares defenses is the, the reverse. When you take a receiver and move them into the backfield, now they have a personnel problem. 
Right. When you take a running back and split them out, they don't have any issues anymore. They figured out how to deal with that years ago, and it's not a, a massive problem. Um, so that isn't the thing that's causing defense's issues the way people think it is. And then the other thing is when you give those guys targets as if they were a slot receiver or a wide receiver, those targets are less effective than they would be if you just threw it to a tight end or a receiver or a wide receiver, right? i.e. running backs are just not as good at playing wide receivers wide receivers are so if the if the idea is all right there's a little bit of of a lack of efficiency there but we make up for it by these big plays those big plays don't happen as often as you think yeah. they are and that doesn't make well, it up so effectively this idea of it's it's like you know the, the versatility that everybody loves right it's only effective it's only a good thing if you do a lot of things to a really high standard and even though McCaffrey does the data says that he's not as effective doing receiver things as actual receivers, at which point that shouldn't be a reason you're paying him a lot more money. So that all that's great. You wrote about it this summer and everything. And I, I'm going to compare it to the, the old Saints offenses where like Reggie Bush would get high volume targets. Um, so I think those good receiving running backs are good third and fourth options, right? It's like the well-rounded offenses it's when you take away the first two or three options, oh, by the way, we can deploy Christian McCaffrey out of the backfield or Reggie Bush out of the backfield or Alvin Kamara out of the backfield. And that's, and that's part of the issue, right? It's, it's not the, well, we're going to build this offense around Christian McCaffrey because if you are doing that and you're feeding him 120 targets, like your team's not going to win a whole lot of games. And I keep going back to that one game Will Greer started uh, against the Colts last year. They scored six points. McCaffrey was so good in that game he was running shallow crosses and it was the perfect game of here's this three yard pass i'm going to turn it into eight i'm going to turn it into ten and he turned them into first downs too but he i don't think i've ever seen a running back in a game take check downs and make something out of them as often as christian mccaffrey did but they scored six points because will greer was bad on other throws that weren't check downs and in turn none of the receivers were productive you know so um, but I'm intrigued because of what we said about the receiving core. That we said DJ Moore, right. Robbie Anderson, Curtis Samuel, if deployed properly, and then McCaffrey if deployed properly. And then if they are going to think about him as a receiver first and running back second, can you convince the defense enough to put a slot or a nickel to match up to Christian McCaffrey? And then you bring him back into the backfield and you get that receiver in the backfield type of effect with McCaffrey. I think they could... They could work that well. I think Brady and the, the Saints pedigree could do a good, pretty good job with that and using his skill set. Well, there's, so there's two points, though. The, one, I, they're better with Christian McCaffrey there, right? My, the, the whole argument is not, is, is Christian McCaffrey a plus to this offense? Because clearly he is. It's, is he a plus to the point where you pay him the, the amount of money they paid him, right? right. That, I think, is the, is the only debate there. Um, and I, I would lean towards no. I think he's got all the he's got all the hallmarks of the unicorn that everybody is chasing at running back right this is the problem with the whole running back debate is that everybody if your starting point is this guy is different right this guy breaks the rules you're probably just doing it wrong right fundamentally you should not be taking that approach it's it's that old medical adage right that when you hear hoofbeats think horses not zebras right maybe every now and again a zebra will come along but if that's how you're thinking to begin everything you're just going to be wrong almost all the time. That's where I am with the McCaffrey thing, right? If you're starting off with the default position of this guy's different, you're probably wrong. You're, you just are. So 
I think fundamentally, I don't think you pay him the giant amount of money. But they're already done, at which point the discussion is, well, clearly he makes the offense better. And the other thing is, as much as, like, overall, league-wide, running backs are less effective than um, slot receivers or even tight ends when they're split into the slot or out wide, you have to look at what the alternative options there are for the Panthers, right? So for them, it's Christian McCaffrey in the slot or out wide or – a Pharaoh Cooper or a Seth Roberts or a Tommy Lee Lewis or even a Curtis Samuel, right? You're not, Samuel. Yeah. you're not necessarily comparing him with, you know, Cole Beasley or like legitimate top end slot receivers. Now, I didn't run those numbers because you're just into sample sizes that don't mean anything at that point. You know what I mean? Yep. But that's a very real rebuttal to that, right? Is that, yeah, sure, league wide, the average level of like tight end or slot receiver is better than a guy like Christian McCaffrey in the slot. But the Panthers don't have a league-wide average of receiving threat at tight end or, or, or slot. They've got right. guys that are not particularly effective, at which point McCaffrey might be so, a better weapon. So that is why I would give up the jersey sales prior to locking him up and try to take Christian McCaffrey after the third year of, of his career and flip him. Because he would somewhere along the league, somewhere in the league you'd get a first-round pick plus. For Christian McCaffrey. Yeah. Right? And then with that first round pick, you know, maybe it was right in the middle. Maybe it was a Jerry Judy. Maybe it was a C.D. Lamb. Uh, you know, maybe it was, you know, an impact player, at a, a player at a more impact position. Um, and then while we might have our own axioms of like, never draft a running back in the first round and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if you don't have to be perfect in every decision. So if drafting a running back is an imperfect decision – Let's say you give in one year and you draft a Christian McCaffrey. I think you can still make do with that, get a couple years out of him. If, so if you can stay disciplined and say, I'll, sure, I'll draft a running back in the first round, and I'm going to take a chance that, he's still, that I'll get something out of him and I'll still have a valuable commodity after year two or three that the league wants, I have to stay true and never lock him up long term and then flip him and you know keep the ball rolling from a roster building standpoint. To me, that would be the... Or if you were a new regime coming in, and it's like, hey, this team has this sunk cost of first-round running back. Um, I know he's the face of the franchise, and Luke just retired, but I have to do what's best for the team long-term, the other, and we're going to win more games if we do that. The other thing about all those sort of axioms is that they're not necessarily always bad decisions. They're just less good than the decision you should have made. Oh, absolutely. Right? Right? So I, I know sometimes – <clears throat> I think we can get trapped in this world of like this is good, this is bad, right. that's it. Right? You did One this. This is the worst thing you could have possibly done, right? right? And it's not true, right? Like, so the Chiefs taking Clyde Edwards-Helaire in the first round, you're like, that's not something we would do, right? And there are a couple of other ways you could have gone that that in theory make a significantly bigger impact to your team. Now they're helped by the fact that then their running back opts out, and suddenly you actually need to lean on this guy a lot more, but. Even then, like it's, it was never going to be a terrible move, right? They've, they've got a guy who is probably going to be a very good player who will probably look really, really good in this offense and help them maximize the talent they have. It's just that we think you could have moved the needle slightly further with a, different, a couple of different options. So that would be the, you know, the Christian McCaffrey thing. Like It's not a bad decision. It's just that it, there's opportunity cost. You might have been able to do something better with that time. All right, so now defensively with the Panthers, we mentioned they used every draft pick there. Their first-round pick was Derek Brown, and this reminded me of the Dolphins' first-round pick the previous year. They have a new coach, and they got the quote-unquote safe run-stopper. The Dolphins picked Christian Wilkins that year. It was just 
everybody loves him. Good teammate, good football player, you know, middle of the defense. You build from the middle and all that stuff. That was what this felt like for the Panthers. We're going to get this guy who's tough. He's strong. He's effective as a run defender. He's a pretty good pass rusher. He's not maybe the best. Op- this, is, this is exactly what you described. Derek Brown is probably going to be a good NFL football player. Hmm. Is, he going to be the, is he the best option with a top 10 pick? Right. With some of those other names that I mentioned earlier, like a Jerry Judy or a, a C.D. Lamb or um, other guys that probably impact the game more. He's not, but this just felt like, man, we're getting our foundation piece with our first pick, and it's a Derrick Brown. It's an interior defensive lineman. I think the Derrick Brown pick is all about the type of player you, you project him as, right? So every, he's one of the most sort of – you talk about polarizing prospects. He's one of the least polarizing prospects, I think, ever in that everybody agreed he's really good. Yeah. Um, the only question mark is how valuable is the thing that he does at the next level? Like he's absurdly good, but is it worth taking that high knowing that that's what he'll be? I think that question is entirely dependent on the, the level that you think that is, right? So I saw him compared to a couple of different players that I, I think are both good comps but are changed the conversation. So Mike Renner, I think, was comparing him to Akeem Hicks, mm-hmm. which is a good one. And then the boss, Chris Collinsworth, compared him to Fletcher Cox, right? And those are – they're not dissimilar players, but I think it fundamentally changes how you, you think of this pick – because Akeem Hicks has been a good player for most of his career and then was really elite in the run game one year, right? And that made him – and even, even that year was sort of okay as a pass rusher but not an impact guy. If he's – and I use air quotes – if he's only Akeem Hicks, I don't know if it's worth that, uh, that spot. If, on the other hand, he's Fletcher Cox, I think you can make the case it absolutely is because Fletcher Cox is – the best power pass rusher in the NFL. He's a dominant run defender as well. Like, he's a game changer. You buy the boss's comp? I'm not. I don't know either way, right? But I'm saying that Renner where you are or the on those two things completely changes whether you think that's a good pick or not. If he's only Akeem Hicks, I don't know that it's worth that pick. If he's Fletcher Cox, it definitely is. So it's really just a case of it's a referendum on how good Brown actually is. Is he really the peak end of that, or is he just... Um, the other end. Um, so, honestly, there's not a ton to say about the uh, the Panthers' defense. We've got uh, a secondary that needed to be completely overhauled. Dante Jackson is the top corner, along with Eli Apple. Um, so, this is why I don't think the this is. I mean, this is the biggest reason why I think the Panthers were in rebuild mode. They went into the offseason with massive question marks in the secondary. They still have them. Uh, pass rush wise, Brian Burns, their 2019 first round pick. You lose Luke Keekley um, in the middle at linebacker. They're just pass rush wise, back seven, massive question marks. I like Shaq Thompson as a coverage linebacker and all that stuff, but like this goes from like the best linebacking core to you know middle of the pack at best. I mean, this whole defense is the rebuild, right? Yeah. This is where it's most obviously evident. They threw the entire draft at this defense and again anytime you're relying on that much youth coming together at once it's unlikely to ever happen year one this is a draft for 2021 it's a defense for 2021 like this is going to be a work in progress this year for the panthers all right quick break to tell you about our friends over at underdog fantasy i see the words one million dollars because they have a one million dollar tournament yes say hello to your new favorite place to play fantasy football for that real money it is underdog fantasy with underdog all you need to do is the fun part, Sam. You get to draft 
Forget about the injuries, trades, waivers, setting lineups. Just set it and forget it and wait for the winnings to come in. As I mentioned, they have that $1 million tournament this year. Just draft the best team and you have a shot at $1 million in prizes. Sign up for Underdog today and enter the best ball mania for a chance for a $1 million in prizes by going to underdogfantasy.com or you can search Underdog Fantasy in your app store. Be sure to enter the code PFF PFF after your first deposit. So I love it. It's best ball. Best ball has really taken over these last few years because you just get to draft. You set it and forget it. And you know the way I draft is with our PFF rankings. That's why I I win all my leagues, Sam, because I draft really well. So Mm. this is the perfect place to put PFF's information to the test with Underdog Fantasy, $1 million tournament. Promo code is PFF over at underdogfantasy.com or by searching Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Let's move on to the New Orleans Saints. Are they the best team in the NFL? I think they're the best roster in the NFL. Um, Top to bottom, I don't think that there's a better roster than this. Uh, the the Saints for me this year is 100% down to like what does Breeze look like in December and January more importantly um, with the last couple of years like Breeze is phenomenal for the first three months of the season over the last couple of seasons like he's great is absurd he's the best quarterback in the NFL for the first three months of the season while healthy you know obviously missed time with the thumb thing last year but he's been incredible it's just that we've seen the last two years now the last few games he hasn't been the same guy. I, you know, Father Time eventually catches up to everybody, and he's the last couple of seasons he's been able to get a hold of Drew Brees late in the season, and we just haven't seen the same guy. So, you know, last season it was Taysom Hill making the big plays in the playoffs, not Brees. The guy has no kind of arm by the end of the year. And last season was particularly concerning because he had the time resting with the thumb. Now, okay, he's like rehabbing and stuff, but. Like, the dude wasn't throwing 50 passes a game for five weeks, right. and his arm still fell off late in the year. Like, they need that guy. They need the first three months breeze in January if they're going to win. Otherwise, they probably aren't beating the best teams. Yeah, I mean, they struggled in that game against the Vikings, uh, the playoff game. Uh, you know, they, he had the, they should have made the Super Bowl the previous year with the, with the right. bad pass interference penalty, but... At the same time, they did get into overtime. He throws a pick in overtime. It's just you're just just missing on some of these plays to the you know, toward the end of the season. Uh, he's been working really diligently on throwing the ball down the field, and I, I say this all the time: when you get your best players and you get something where they really want to improve and they're working on it, I feel like more often than not, am I just buying into the hype we, too much? You can't. It's a physical thing, right? You can't turn back the clock. Like the, what? What's the real problem for him is that it's not like a it's not a hard line in the sand the way it was for Peyton Manning, right? Peyton Manning came back from the neck injury and it's like, oh wow, this is never coming back. I need to change how I play and fundamentally alter my game, otherwise I'm sunk. Drew Brees, it's like it comes at him slowly every year, right? And it's like for the first three months, like, no, you can you can still do what you used to do. And then then December hits, it's yeah. like not not anymore. <laughs> Like there's no you can't learn that on the fly, right? You can't you can't sort of mentally adjust every year just for the month of December. So he never gets to do what Manning did, which is like reset in his head. He has it sort of slowly the rug slowly pulled out from under him yeah. every year late in the season. I don't think you're fixing that in an off season. Yeah, and I think the, the, this offense has been 
I mean, Drew Brees has had one of the, the lowest average depth of targets over the last couple of years. Yep. Uh, they've had, in turn, one of the highest percentage of open throws, as I mentioned earlier. They've been very specific there, and I think the defenses have just crept up a little bit um, and forced him to throw the ball down the field in the Minnesota game, in the, even in the Rams game, where, again, they should have been to the Super Bowl in 2018, but it also wasn't the best offensive performance there. The offense, that which has been really good, has started out a little bit you know down the stretch there's also like last year remember they scored nine points at home against atlanta the the team that we just said had a terrible uh back seven had no business doing that so they just have like these random blips so i wonder you know i hate the storyline of like he's good he's good he's good father time like i just don't generally like that even if that's what we've seen the last couple years i just wonder if this offense is just having a few random blips and it's like well last year you had one in the middle of the season the previous year, you had one against Dallas where they played a great game. And then you also had them at the end of the year as well. Are they just not coming at the right time? But Is also, it just a timing thing? I think these are the margins, right? Like Breeze going from the best quarterback in the NFL to wherever he is when Father Time has him in his grasp, it doesn't make him bad. It just means that he's not, he's not the best quarterback in the NFL at that point, right? And those are the differences between making it to the Super Bowl or not. Like you're not making it to the Super Bowl with – a garbage quarterback you need something right so the difference between them making it and winning and them being a play away is breeze not quite being the way he used to be so the the good news is that everything around him is still phenomenal right and he's still capable of doing enough that maybe they just get lucky and the the rams game the pass interference play breaks the other way right that the play that is killing them at the moment actually does break their way but the, the the lack of breeze at his best buys them or costs them such a huge amount of breathing space yeah. to make to not have to rely on one play right. Let's discuss the rest of that supporting cast. Michael Thomas breaking the record for most receptions last year, and I will say too, I, you have to say all this right. You always get like the well, how did how did the offense run when Brady was hurt, and how did the offense? We've discussed Mahomes. How did the offense run when Mahomes was down and Matt Moore came in and did well? This offense. It wasn't as good, but it ran pretty efficiently. And you mentioned those couple games where Teddy threw the ball down the field a little bit more. The offense was still pretty good, and they did go undefeated without Breeze last year. Michael Thomas did not lose any of his production, really, with Teddy Bridgewater. Now they add Emmanuel Sanders. Uh, Jared Cook has had, you know, he's been rejuvenated in New Orleans at tight end. And, of course, you have Alvin Kamara coming out of the backfield. Traquan Smith is a solid wide receiver three. It is one of the better all-around groups of playmakers the question would be though they've always had the designated deep threat Mm. no more ted ginn you you don't have devery henderson from 10 years ago you just don't have that designated down the field guy that they've generally had to help re-stretch the field i mean i think Traquan smith can do that um like when he was coming out he was basically really good either at like bubble screens or deep nothing in the middle i think he can still be that guy um emmanuel sanders in this offense i think is a huge addition because as much as Michael Thomas was still able to beat everybody, even though they knew he was like the only threat, at some point that probably runs out. And the idea that now you have to contend with Emmanuel Sanders as well, um, and we saw the impact that he had on the 49ers, I think that's a huge addition to this team. Kamara should be better this year than he was a season ago because he was dealing with injuries. Look, this roster is phenomenal. I think the offense will be one of the best in the league. Deontay Harris can be the deep threat, the little punt returner. Out of the uh, Northeast 10. Anyway, um, so the offense should be great. Again, um, they have to get rid of those those few games where just things aren't clicking. Taysom Hill, of course, the do-it-all guy. 
Um, I thought la- I thought two years ago it felt forced. I thought last year, I mean, he was kind of the most effective player on the field in that Vikings game. He did have yeah. the 50-yard pass, and he made a few nice plays. I mean, they've done a nice job of mixing him in. At, at the very least, it's it's a difficult it's a difficult offense to defend because of all those moving parts. And then you've got the best tackle tandem in the NFL and Teron Armstead and Ryan Ramchek. I wonder about the interior, though, without with Larry Warford gone. Cesar Ruiz is going to step in. Andrus Pete's been battling some injuries and everything. But um, I don't you – know, Eric McCoy was a good center last year. But you have the rookie and Pete scheduled to play guard instead of having Larry Warford, who was really good last year. I mean, they might actually have taken a step back even though they wanted to make this move and get more athletic up front. Yeah, I think they've got contingency that's that's not bad, though. Like, Nick Easton could come in and start. Yeah. Like, if, if Andrus Pete just has a disaster and you're like, oh, God, we need to make changes. They like, like him, though, and they blocked him up. My point is, if one of those three, if it all falls to pieces and they need to make some adjustments midway through the season, I think they've got some options to do that with Nick Easton, with you know guys like James Hurst. I think they've actually got some depth there that could be effective. Um, so, I mean, the starting group is concern, not concerning, but there's the potential they could be concerning. But I think they've got depth to mitigate that. Uh, let's go to the secondary because the last couple – Marshawn Lattimore hit the ground running as a rookie in 2017, looked like the next great corner. I think we always talk about how dependent our you know, cornerback numbers or defensive numbers are on offenses. The fact that Marshawn Lattimore four times a year has to go up against Julio and Calvin, has to go up against Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, I mean, that's just not a it's – not, it's a rough starting point. Marshawn Lattimore, though, still one of the best corners in the NFL – the big question with the Saints has always been that other spot. We saw Ken Crowley out there. We saw, can Eli Apple be the guy? Now it's Janoris Jenkins. And I think that this is maybe the difference for the Saints. You know, Lattimore, corners are going to get beat. You know, that's fine. But Lattimore you trust, and he's just he's a, he's a really good corner. He'll make some plays, and he'll at least compete against some of the better receivers. But if that number two spot is an issue, teams can pepper pepper it and take advantage of it a lot of pressure on Janoris Jenkins here. There is. And Jenkins, I think, is an interesting corner for, and an interesting player for that role because he does get beat, right? But on the other hand, he's also got an insane amount of talent. Like we saw, um, he had that one year where he looked like, you know, a top end shutdown corner. 2016 with the Giants. Right. And then it never really happened again. And that's, and more to the point, like the consistency of it not happening has been pretty impressive. Like his baseline is actually the same every single year. Yeah. But it's not week to week. Like he's kind of like the Nick Foles of, of cornerbacks in terms of it sort of nets out somewhere in, in the average range, but it's it comes via these swings of but it gets there with uh, right amazing and terrible. So he gives up like a ton of uh, a ton of touchdowns, but he'll get some interceptions. He'll make some plays really tough, and he'll come up big on some critical downs because he's a tough guy to beat. So for a number two corner, I think that's. Like, that's almost where you want to be, right? You actually probably want to default to a guy who, I mean, he's going to get beat sometimes, but the fact that he's this good at his best makes you question. You can't just go after him relentlessly because he will punish you for that, at which point you're sort of running, you're basically rolling the dice about whether you get good or bad Janoris on a play. You're not kidding because when you look at the PFF grades, he has graded in the, in like a shade of green every year of his career. Yeah. There's some lighter shades of green. There's some darker shades of green. But even last year, with uh, when he was with the Saints, you saw like a 49 grade in his first game, and then an 89 grade in his next game. So there are 
um, some ebbs and flows. And, and honestly, I think this is what the Saints, I think this is what their Super Bowl hopes come down to. If you just take a macro look at where they've been the last couple of years, the last three years, one of the best teams in the NFL, the best supporting cast of Drew Brees' career, and you have a Minnesota miracle in 2017, you have the missed call plus an overtime interception from Brees against the Rams, and then you have pretty much just a dud against the Vikings. I don't know if there's any legitimate excuse uh, for that game, but a dud. Yeah, I mean, when they should have beaten the Vikings in the playoffs last year. So you have three years where they're close. It's going to come down to, like, a Janoris Jenkins play, right? Or it's, it's, it's just going to be those plays go the Saints' way this year. Like, that's my analysis. Like, they're, they built, for the fourth straight year, a really good team. You said maybe the best roster in the NFL. They're going to be in the mix. They need things to go their way. Marcus Williams is a really good safety, despite the Minnesota miracle play. They've built this defensive front much better. A couple years ago, we are like, man, give Cameron Jordan some help. Now he's got some help. Marcus Davenport emerged last year. He's not, he's not worth two first-round picks, but he's, still, he's becoming a pretty good player. Sheldon Rankin's still in the middle there. Trey Hendrickson, when they deployed Hendrickson, Davenport, and Cameron Jordan, it was a pretty good NASCAR type of package, even though they're not NASCAR type of players. They're all edge defenders by name and they're moving them about they've got a pretty good defensive front so all the pieces are in play demario demario davis became one of the best linebackers in the nfl last year that's gonna be tough to duplicate but man he is he has had a really nice late career you know rejuvenation so not a lot of holes no and sheldon rankin's trying to get back to being where he looked like he was headed before injury as well. Like he, I think, has the potential to be an impact player for this defensive front. They bring in Malcolm Brown, who's a really solid addition. Yeah, it's it's tough to find holes on this roster. Malcolm Brown, good early early down run defender. So, Saints, are you going to pick them to win the NFC? Are they going to win the division? Where do you think they end up? I think they win the division. Uh, I mean... I'm not going to pick them to win the NFC just because of this late. You're buying into it. Yeah. I mean, two years in a row. and You love old man, can't do it anymore stories. It's not just like if it was just data, fine. But when you turn on the tape, you see it as well. Like he doesn't look the same guy late in the year. His arm is not where it it was. And that's when it shows up. Like he throws a 15-yard out and it falls in the dirt at the guy's feet. Like he doesn't have the arm that he had – Earlier in his career and even earlier in the season. Like, I, I just don't see a way you find that again through training. And more to the point, like I say, I think it's different from that Manning thing where you can, like, mentally readjust because it, it comes on him as the season goes. And it's, I just don't think you can adjust to that week to week. I'm just going to use this as an example. I think Breeze, over the last two years, the body of work has been really good. And yes. I think it's in part because he's had these high end games. Like, when he broke. Well, he had like one incompletion last year against the Colts, and he's breaking records. Like he has games where he's so on. He had a ninety-six point three game uh, grade against the Colts, but after that game, it was a sixty-one, a fifty-three, and a sixty-two down the stretch. Now, even over the last two years, he's had a couple of those games just kind of like the last year was very distinctly down the stretch. But last uh, the, in two thousand eighteen, again when he was really good, he had a fifty-nine in the middle of the season against Minnesota, a sixty-one, a sixty-one, a sixty-five. The games kind of sprinkle in a little bit. I think his high-end games happen most of the time. They're in the dome. It's feeling good. Like, he's streaky is what I'm trying to get to. I think there's some streakiness to Breeze, even though, like, over the course of his career, there's a lot of consistency. 
there's some streakiness to him where when he's hot, like, man, he's going to find the right guy. He's going to make you look stupid. Him and Sean Payton are on the same page. But there are games where the offense just doesn't look right. And I think those are the things that have held the Saints back the last couple of years. It's tough to put your finger on it. Like, why did they get, only score nine against the Falcons? Right. It didn't make any sense. <clears throat> but it happened, and those things have popped up it's throughout not, the last couple of years. It's not the silver bullet because, you know, they played the Vikings at home, and he looked bad. But the home field advantage is big for the Saints. It is. Like, they, they need to be inside in the dome for the entirety of the playoffs. That's because that's when he has those... Right, we're on. It's games. not that like, it guarantees us. It's not that it guarantees them, but right. they're probably not happening outside. Right, at least inside, you've got a shot at that guy showing up. You know what would happen if if Bill Walsh was coach of the Forty ers Oh man, they would he bench Drew Brees at go, some point. Go listen to the uh, to our uh, Steve Young Joe Montana episode, and you would know how Bill Walsh would handle he this. He would bench Drew Brees at some point, probably and, week one, and either Jameis. Either Jameis or Taysom Hill would get the start that week because he thinks they give him a better shot to win than noodle arm geriatric breeze down the stretch. You know what else Bill Walsh would and be doing? And the world would explode. With, like, Walsh would be going full load management with Breeze. Probably. He'd be going like, you know what, Winston's going to start four games. Yeah. And, and then, you know, Breeze just has to start 12. Or he would genuinely identify the point in the season where Drew Breeze is no longer Drew Breeze and say, you know what, at this point – Jameis gives us a better shot of winning the game. We're putting him in. Oh, man. And you're just going to have to deal with it. I, I just think they need the bounces to go their way this think year. I'm, I'm picking the Saints as the best team in the NFC again. Think Sean Payton does that? Oh, definitely. Benches Breeze? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In the wild card round. Is this Breeze's last year? Is, is Has this to be, right? Like, I mean, they've been loaning out for like one more year for like the last five years, so who the hell knows, but... All right, let's move on. Tampa Bay Bucks. This was the curveball thrown into this division. The Bucks go from the team that I think on the left. If you go back to the season previews over the last seven years, the Bucks are our sleeper team. They're the team. This is the year. They're going to put it all together. Now things have changed because you go from Jameis Winston at quarterback where it's like, man, his high end could be really good. This could be the year to Tom Brady at quarterback with, a, with probably, you know, maybe the best group of playmakers in the NFL now. Um, Brady coming in to Tampa Bay, playing in the Bruce Arians system. Have you seen some of the training camp clips and stuff like that? Uh, a few of them. I mean, it sounds like all I keep seeing is like red zone work where it's like touchdown, 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 which usually happens in the red zone because there's yeah. a lot of opportunities. It seems like the offense is playing all right. And from, you know, the um, it's going to be it's going to come down to how comfortable Brady is with Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, guys, Evans who wins slightly differently. Then other guys that Brady's thrown to, you got to take some more chances. You got to throw, you know, let him go make plays. You've got Gronk, you've got OJ Howard. There's just so many options here, but it's going to come down to Brady comfort level within Arians' system and being, you know, 43. I did also see uh, Ronald Jones dropping a couple of swings out of the backfield. Oh, he drops like, bad ones. That guy's never playing. <laughs> you know, like at USC, he had like 25 targets in his entire career and a couple of really bad drops in there. Like that guy cannot catch. And can you imagine how quickly Brady is going to lose confidence he in a guy some, that just can't catch a swing out of the backfield? He had some clunky That dude's drops. getting like getting 58 First down, first and long, obvious run situation carries, and then no factor whatsoever in the pass game. What do you think happens with this offense? Is it? It sounds like they've gone full Arians offense. They're going. It's his system. Uh, the reports are that they're still like. It's not that the, every pass is twenty yards down the field. There's they're play. They're running a lot more quick game. There's always different options. The uh, the quarterback can dictate where he's going with the ball. 
But I think we're still going to see Brady throw the ball down the field more than he did since 2017 when he was really attacking downfield with Brandon Cooks and you know won the MVP that year. So I think we're going to see more of a vertical attack, and it's going to be tough to cover all these dudes. Yeah. And the offense is going to be good. There's almost no way it can't be. Like, the only way this offense would not be good is if you buy into the idea that Brady fell off a cliff last year and he's finally reached the point where old man Brady is done, right? But I think any— Are you there? No. I think, like, a cursory look at the tape says that Brady was fine last year. Like, he's a little bit worse than he used to be when he was the best quarterback in the NFL. But— the problem last year was that nobody could get open. Like you called it before the season, this is the slowest receiving core in the NFL, yes. which means it's the worst separating receiving core in the NFL, which means the quarterback has nowhere to go with the ball every time he drops back to pass. And it came to a head. And that was the problem, right? They like, Every time Brady dropped back, nobody was open. Yeah. Once teams figured out you could double-team Julian Edelman and he was no longer a factor, then really nobody was open. And that made everything worse. It meant that Brady, like his... Bottom line just got worse because his guys aren't open. The completion rate's going to be lower. But it meant that he was holding on to the ball longer, which is a problem. It also makes the offensive line worse because they have to pass block for longer. It made Brady worse under pressure because even when he held on to the ball long enough that the pressure arrived, there was still nowhere to go with the ball. So it, it was worse under pressure. Right. So everything looked bad, but the whole thing is because the receivers sucked. Like, and now the receivers don't suck anymore. He's got Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, both top-tier receivers. He's got Gronk and O.J. Howard. And, oh, by the way, there's another tight end in there in Cameron Brait as well. Who can, yeah, he's fine. Too. Ronald Jones might not be able to catch, but LaShawn McCoy can. Like, there's, there's weapons all over the place. He's going to have places to go with the ball. That should allow Brady to make the offensive line look better. So I think this offense will be good. At wide receiver, there's a lot of hype about Scotty Miller. 2019 sixth round pick because he's uh you know he looks like previous receivers that brady has liked thrown to he's a different style though he's a vertical you know sub four four guy but he's made a few nice plays figuring out who that wide receiver three is i think is going to be key isn't as much as tight end they have three legit tight ends two awesome receivers but is it justin watson fifth round pick tyler johnson who's off to a slow start or scotty miller you know i think that'll determine too like if you get some production there like okay this team's tough to stop my question about Brady, because if you do watch the film and it's like, all right, where did he actually regress last year? Because there was some regression. It was in his footwork, and it was in, like, second read um, situations, right? So it's going from, okay, it's not here. Let me get to my uh, to the backside of a player, whatever it is. My concern with the new system is you know, those, those plays are so ingrained for 20 years, right? You know, if this isn't here, I'm going here. Like, you know the offense inside and out. Is there any hesitancy to his game is there anything you know is there anything getting to the second read that's like a tick slow because Brady has to play fast like that's what he's the best ever at is playing fast knowing where he's going with the ball is there anything you know because you know when he gets to his third or fourth option that he's just not it's just not ingrained yet I think those are going to be like the plays early in the year that kind of determine how good this this team is you know it's, it's going to be a couple plays per game where maybe familiarity with the system comes comes back to bite I don't know but I think arm-wise, he's fine, and he can still make all the throws. And um, Cliff theories, I think, are are just bad TV. I, I mean, I think it, it's people not looking beyond the obvious, right? Clearly, quarterback gets old, really old, um, and has a bad year. It's like, well, obviously he's done. Yeah. Okay, but go and look. Like, figure out. And it's I defend all the Cliff guys. I mean, I've defended Philip Rivers. I've defended Aaron Rodgers. I just think it's 
I think it's too lazy to just think, right. okay, everything's over. The problem is that you can, if you're looking for it, you can find it in Brady's tape, right? Because, you know, certain dumbass analysts that will remain nameless have pulled out, like, clips of Brady missing a running back in the flat on a swing. You know, like, well, see, his accuracy's done, like that. But he's always done that. Like, Brady, like as much as Brady is – One-off misses. Right, one of the best, quarterback, yeah. the best quarterback ever, one of the most accurate quarterbacks ever. The dude has always, like, missed random throws out of the backfield. Of or Like, he's never been – and even like, – he's incredibly accurate, but he's never been Drew Brees. Like, he's never had that, like, metronomic, absurd laser accuracy where the ball hits the guy in the eyes every time because that's where he's aiming for. Brady's always missed some throws. So if you're going there looking for, like, here's Brady's decline – you can find it on last year's tape. And I'm not saying he was the same guy as when he went on that three-year stretch and was the best quarterback in the NFL. He's worse than that now. But the reason – like, he didn't drop from being, like, the best to being just behind the best. He dropped from being the best to being way off the pace. And that drop is, like, 80% receiver, 20% Brady declining. So we think the offense is going to be all right. I'm fascinated by it. Assuming assuming Tom learned his playbook – I am fascinated by watching him throw to a whole bunch of bigger receivers. Chris Godwin is still a good separator that moves around, but it's still it's a vertical first offense. They'll blend it to Brady's skill set and all that stuff too, but there's also a narrative that he can't throw down the field. He's fine throwing the ball down the field. We're going to see a little bit more. I'm more interested in how many tight window throws is he going to – because Mike Evans isn't a great separator, but you just – you know, throw it up and away, he's going to catch it, right? So, Well, he's, he's like, do you remember the, the Alex Smith year in Kansas City where he led the league in deep passing and passer rating? It was like a pre-snap look, right? If I look up and I'll look, Tyreek Hill is one-on-one on the outside, that's where the ball's going, yeah. right? I'm just dropping back and putting it in the air. That's all Tom Brady needs to do to Mike Evans, right? The right. fact, even if his arm isn't what it used to be, it doesn't matter because those throws are not where that shows up. He can just drop back five-step rhythm, put it in the air, and let Mike Evans go run under it, and that's your play. Like, that connection could be extremely potent regardless of whether Brady's arm is is on the decline because the whole thing is, like, predetermined. It's a pre-snap look, and it's it's a rhythm throw just putting the ball in the air accurately. So he can do that almost regardless of what happens. The thing that I'm most interested to, to watch in this offense is what Gronkowski looks like. Yeah, guy's been out of the game for a year, and when he ended, he wasn't the same guy as he'd been throughout his career. So does a year out of the game make him better or worse? <clears throat> I, think it make, I think he has a chance because cause you're not going to lose the skill. It's just about the step. Physicality. It's just about athleticism. I think the year, being a WWE champion, <laughs> <laughs> the year away takes away the wear and tear. I could see him being quicker yeah. you know and being faster and just and then you can then you can because you have oj howard and cameron Brait, all right you're just gonna play 30 awesome snaps or i'm not gonna throw mm-hmm. you in there to run block as right. much as you did before or maybe i'm not gonna do it until thanksgiving you know like we're just gonna we're gonna manage this thing well so you can be a star down the stretch the the thing is though all that said about brady and knowing the offense and all that stuff you mitigate that by putting gronk out there early on week one and it's like, when all else fails, I'm throwing a back shoulder to Gronk. Like, I've got the connection with him, and I trust him, and I know where he's going to be. So Brady probably needs that to kind of, like, get going. But I'd still limit Gronk 30, 35, 40 snaps a game, you know, whatever it might be, and just, you know, be awesome for those snaps, and we'll see how that progresses. I think he's going to be not 2017 self, but better than he was 2018. 
It's a really small likely. sample size of guys that have like taken a year off from football and come back. Period. Yeah. Um, but the ones that you can think of, it's they've all been better. Like a year away from just getting your ass kicked for a full year of you know injuries and physical yeah. toll. Like you hear all these stories of when you get to December, everybody's hurt. Like everybody's playing injured. Nobody is a hundred percent. Like you are playing with some degree of physical toll on your body. And it's like, who's least wrecked at that point is the one that wins. Like, a year away from that is huge. I would be interested in that, right? Gronk has taken so many hits, and some of them have injured him and knocked him out, but you still, most of the time, he bounces back, right? I would be interested after he takes the first two or three hits. What is his recovery like? I think that's a bigger thing, is what does his recovery look like rather than how fast is he right now in August when you're not banged up, you know? So I think that's going to be the crucial thing for Tampa Bay. If they're playing the long game, you need Gronk in December and January, not so much in September. But at the same time, as I said, you want to have a familiar target for Brady early on. Defensively, the Bucks. it was a complete overhaul last year. You bring in Todd Bowles to play man coverage. For years, Tampa Bay is more of a zone-heavy team. They're in Tampa, so you have to play Tampa too. It's just by the rules. But they came in and they started blitzing more, playing more man coverage, and they've got the big and they've invested so much in the secondary the last couple of years, and they started to see the payoff down the stretch with Carlton Davis, the 2018 second rounder out of Auburn, and then last year's third round rookie, also out of Auburn, Jamel Dean. Two monster cornerbacks who got their hands on more passes than any other duo in the league down the stretch after week 10 last year. Um, are, are they going to see this secondary investment pay off this year? Um, or was that just like a flash in the pan for those guys? I think, <clears throat> I think they will. It would be such a bummer if that was just like a freak run and they go back to just not being good. <laughs> they would, look good. I mean, they were both really, good in college. That would bum everybody out. I, yeah. I, I think they should be good. <clears throat> um, and then they add Antoine Winfield Jr. in the draft. Who could, I, he seems like the kind of player that would be actually a day one impact guy. You know, we yeah. talked about relying on rookies to make an impact is always a long shot, but he's one of those guys that specializes in just being a good football player. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, and, and those guys, I think, translate the easiest if the physical things are all there. Like, if there isn't a reason those guys will struggle to translate to the next level, I think they will. So, him being added to that group that has these stable of, of big, strong, physical, tough man corners, that group should be really good. I'm more intrigued by sort of what the front seven looks like. Um, yeah, just to, on the Antoine Winfield pick, yeah, we didn't talk about the offensive line at all, but the Bucks went into the draft, and they said, and very rarely do you draft for need, but they're in a unique situation with two years of Brady. They had a hole at right tackle. They drafted Tristan Wirfs, who's getting all the run with the first team and was a good, very good player in college. And they drafted Antoine Winfield to fill a specific hole at safety where Justin Evans, Mike Edwards have been up and down, and I think they just need a little bit more stability back there. Your question about the front seven, I think, is are you going to get the same type of, well, our pass rush production or the sack pass rush production out of Shaq Barrett, JPP on the other side? You have Indomitian Sue, you have Vita Vea. This is one of the more fascinating just groups that they've put together, especially on the defensive line, with the emerging Vea as one of the better all-around nose tackles in the league, and Dominican Sue, who can still play the run all right late in his career. What are you expecting out of this group? Yeah, it's funny in that <laughs> I couldn't be more confident about the kind of season you're going to get from Shaquille Barrett, um, which is to say basically the same year as he's had every other season of his career, only this time without the 20-sack total, you know what I mean? So 12 sacks? 
Yeah, like, so the thing is, he's basically graded the same every year of his career. He was no different last year than previous Shaq Barrett. He just had 250 more chances to rush the passer and lucked into a few sacks. Like, that, you know, I put out these uh, edge rusher rankings uh, today, I think, on pff.com. The people aren't happy? People aren't happy. Um, in one in particular, because we put Chase Young, and I was always leery about ranking a rookie, but that, it's just a, an indication of how strongly we feel about Chase Young, given his college grading. Yeah. But ranked the rookie, Chase Young, above sack leader last year, Shaquille Barrett. And, I mean, it's two things, right? It's one, we feel really confident about Chase Young. This guy has the best grading and best pass rush win rate we've ever seen of an edge rusher. And all the other guys at the top of that list have hit the ground running in the NFL, right? The Miles Garretts of the world, the Bosa brothers. Like Nick Bosa last season broke the rookie record for pressures, <clears throat> was completely dominant, and Chase Young had better college grades than him. So you have to expect him to be good. And then Shaquille Barrett, I, stop calling him the sack champion. I mean, I know he was, but it's not an indication of what he is. You know, Bruce Arians is saying, look, you got to lock this guy up. You don't stumble upon NFL sack champions every year. It's like, but you won't. Like, he isn't that. Like, you got this guy essentially off the street because he was a rotational body in Denver who'd been good, not great. He was still that same guy. You just gave him 250 more chances to rush the passer. And sure, like, he, his production jumped up a little bit, like career high in pressures as well. But again, another one of these guys who a huge proportion of his plays became clean up and pursuit and unblocked pressures. Like he is not going to be the sack champion again next year or, in fact, be in the discussion. He's going to be – he's way more likely to be under 10 sacks than he is to hit 20 again. Yeah, I mean, I think – But he's good. He's good, not great. Uh, Right, exactly. So I think that goes back to the whole thing like when I say, you know, coaches – have to be able to properly evaluate what actually happened. You know, what happened last year. Um, and, you know, you could say that stuff in the public to just kind of like talk up your players and stuff like that. But you also have to be honest about expectations. This is a, it's a good, it's a decent, not great pass rushing situation because Barrett is the top guy, but JPP's always been, you know, better against the run than as a pass rusher. Uh, I think it's going to take Vea who has pushed the pocket pretty well. It's going to take him kind of taking that next step forward. Again, I don't know if you're expecting a ton from Sue. Um, I'm really interested at the linebacking group because Levante David is now a top-two linebacker now that Luke Keekley has retired. It's, it's Levante David and Bobby Wagner. He has been incredibly consistent throughout his career. Will Devin White take the step forward? Because he was – you saw the athleticism and all that stuff, but he was just – you know, you saw it negatively too, flying all over the place or missing tackles. But those two guys have the ability to be one of the better tandems, definitely one of the most athletic tandems in the league. I'm interested to see what Devin White does because he could help a lot if he develops in, in his second year. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think the Sue thing is, is pretty big because he's obviously getting older, he's declined, and he has played a stupid amount of snaps in his career. Like that dude, he's always been on the field. Like, do you try and scale that back and have him yes. as more of an impact player? Or do you just say, look, the damage is already done. Like, the wear and tear is there. Let's, let's ride him until the wheels fall off. But we expect Vita Vea, I think, to take a step forward and become a pretty dominant nose tackle. But he needs a running mate inside. Um, he needs someone else that can cause some problems rather than just occupy some snaps and you know, take some, 
some time. Sue last year with Tampa Bay had his la- lowest grade since 2011. Yeah. Because his, his second year, we actually didn't grade him all that well. That was when, remember, he'd get trapped nine times Every a game. play, yeah. It wasn't really a lot, that, that much. But, you know, he got trapped a lot. He didn't know how to play the run back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was his lowest pass rush grade of his career. And he played 874 snaps. This is like, if you go back, again, seven years, my like Dwight Freeney analysis at the end of his career, it's like, just use him for 400 snaps. Just mm. use him for 350. You know, I, I would do that with Sue at this point. Rakeem uh, nunez Rochez. But the thing, the thing with Sue is that he I don't know. So if you like, if you when you did that with Freeney, he was still like a devastating pass rush. The, right. Like that guy's spin move was still working at the age, like right at the tail end of his career against elite players. It, I don't know that if you scale Sue back to like 400 snaps, if he becomes a significantly better player, or if you just get half the use out of him. Like I, he feels to me like a player that might just be playing at this level now because of all the wear and tear. But he would he would play at that level whether you played him for two hundred snaps or a thousand. At Maybe. which point you might as well play him for the thousand and just like I say, ride it till the wheels fall off. Yeah, I mean he's still solid, but not what he was previously. So anyway, I think the Bucks um, again one of the biggest stories in the NFL. <clears throat> Brady and Arians, an incredible group of playmakers, an offensive line that actually has gotten a little bit better over the last couple of years and should be more protected this year. A defense that was good in the right areas last year down the stretch as far as coverage goes. They got thrown on a lot because they were in shootouts, and they they stopped the run really well because they were in shootouts, right? Um, Not necessarily because they were awesome at stopping the run, even though they are good in that area. Can they compete with the Saints in the South? Do they have a shot at representing the NFC in the Super Bowl? I think they can compete with the Saints, um, and a huge amount of it will be what does this decline of Drew Brees hit in December and cause him to stumble late in the year? Like, I think the Saints are going to be shooting for the number one seed. They're going to be shooting for home field advantage. Like, the Bucks might have to play spoiler or they might, you know, be able to pounce late in the year if, if the Saints do have a stumble and jump them, you know, week week 17, week 16, something like that. I just, they're not as good as the Saints top to bottom, but they might not have the fatal Achilles heel that New Orleans has. Yeah, I mean, I think, I say it every year, it's so tough to predict the NFC. It's really because it's just loaded. Uh, they beat each other up. But I think the Bucks will very much be in that mix. It, I think this is the best division in football at the top because of the Bucks and the Saints and what the Falcons are capable of. Um, so I can't wait. I can't wait to watch it. But I think the Bucks make the playoffs, and it's going to be you know a fascinating next chapter to Brady's career and, and, and just that entire storyline. And once you hit the playoffs, anything can happen. Yeah. Like, I'm not – I don't think they're as good as the Saints top to bottom. I don't think they win the division over a 16-game schedule. But on a series of one-off games in the postseason, I think the Bucks could be able to beat anybody. So, you know, I don't think they're going to – they're not going to be like the Packers a year ago, right, where they're clearly inferior – Right. To the to the team they're going up against, and there's almost there's just no way they're beating the 49ers. I think the Bucks, if they get to the playoffs, could be dangerous enough to beat anybody. Absolutely. I mean, it, again, it comes down to the pass game. I can't wait to see what that looks like with Brady Arians and those playmakers. Yeah, unless Brady does hit the wall, in which case they're screwed. Then they're in trouble. <laughs> but we shall see. Um, there we go. That's the NFC South. It's going to be tough. Hashtag it's going to be tough. Um, that's seven divisions in the book. We'll finish the NFC West this week, and then we'll get back to 
regularly scheduled programming, which is reacting to all the news and everything that's happening in the NFL. Thanks to everybody for tuning in to the PFF NFL podcast. Don't forget, pff.com, you've got our new college football subscription. Use the promo code CFB25, CFB25, to get 25% off your college football first ever PFF subscription. Grades, magazine, the premium stats for every single FBS team. Do we, I think we have FCS in there, too, we've, we've given. I don't think we've, we've hit, hidden any of that. It's crazy. No, I mean, whatever what we're giving we've got out. is there. Yeah, it's all there, um, plus the Easter egg. So your college football subscriptions, your PFF Edge and Elite Package has the preseason draft guide in there. And thanks to our sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. It's underdogfantasy.com or search Underdog Fantasy in the App Store. Promo code's PFF. Go check it out. We'll be back on Thursday.